Well, at this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 4 and verse 17. We'll be reading from Ephesians 4.17 up through chapter 5, verse 2. Ephesians 4.17 through chapter 5 and verse 2. Let's give careful attention now to God's holy word beginning in verse 17. This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness, But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard Him and have been taught by Him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love, as Christ also has loved us and given Himself for us, and offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. May the Lord bless His Word to us this morning. Amen. We're relying upon God for His help this morning. Let's turn back to the passage that we read from Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And focusing our attention on verse 26, where the Apostle Paul here is outlining what it means to be a Christian, the reality of what it means to be born again, to have been brought from darkness to light, to have been recreated according to God 
in true righteousness and holiness. And then the corresponding responsibility that we have, having been made new, to walk in newness of life. And of course, that has many practical implications in terms of our thoughts, our words, our actions, our lifestyle, our conduct. And here in verse 26, he brings out one aspect of this. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. And then he, in verse 31, he says, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. As we mentioned in the announcements before the service, we are looking ahead this coming Lord's Day to the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Uh, We anticipate that. We're looking forward to that. The Lord's Supper is a beautiful aspect of the Christian life. It's an opportunity for us to come before the Lord into His courts and to His table and to commune alongside our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ to commune with God in and through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the table of the Lord and we greatly desire to be with the Lord at that table even as we greatly desire to be with the Lord for all eternity in heaven. There's a unique intimacy, a communion, a fellowship with His body and blood, with His bride at that table. And in connection with that, in this particular month in which we celebrate the sacrament, we'll be renewing our vows before the Lord. We'll be explicitly renewing our covenant of communicate membership, which is our profession of faith and purpose. And we're going to be renewing, those of us that that have taken this vow or that have baptized covenant children, we'll be renewing our covenant of baptism, our commitment to raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We do that in principle every time we come to the Lord's table, but as we see throughout the Scriptures, there are uh, occasions in which God's people do it explicitly, not just celebrating the Passover, but also covenanting and renewing covenant, all that the Lord has said we will do. And in the same way, That's what we're looking forward to in in the, the Lord's Supper coming up. But every time we take the Lord's Supper, we are engaging in covenant renewal. We are taking up the cup, which is the new covenant, Jesus says. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. We're taking it. We're taking up this covenant. We're renewing this covenant through the imagery, through the elements through the actions of the sacrament. And it reminds us what we're actually renewing. We're renewing a covenant in which God declares what He shall do for His people. The new covenant is a list of promises in Jeremiah 31 that says that particularly for God's New Testament people, His new covenant people, that uh, they will experience an amazing outpouring of divine grace. The Old Testament church 
which was characterized by unfaithfulness, unfaithful to the Lord as its head and husband. We're told that when God makes a new covenant, that He will pour out grace and salvation and a greater outpouring of spiritual life upon His church that we might be more and more equipped to be a faithful spouse, to take hold of the Lord Jesus Christ as our head and husband. Uh, It says in in, in those uh, verses, My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them. But when we come to the Lord's table, we come desiring to be a faithful bride by the grace of God. We come desiring, as it says, to know the Lord. To know the Lord. To know Him intimately. To have a fellowship with Him as our husband. We come desiring to have His law written upon the tablet of our heart. To have it written upon our minds and on our inward parts so that we would be able to see Him in all His beauty and glory and worship Him from a heart of sincerity so that we would be able to walk with Him as our God and we as His people. So that we might be able to have assurance that He has forgiven our iniquity and remembered our sin no more. This is the climax of the Christian life and of Christian worship and we ought to be anticipating it with great longing and desire to renew that covenant, to receive those promises. But my friends, if we receive those promises, then it has implications for the way that we live. If we're saying, I am the Lord's and He is my husband and I know Him and love Him and He has forgiven all my sins and I'm confessing those sins and I want to repent of those sins, And I'm claiming the promise that He'll write His law upon my inward parts, upon my mind, upon my heart. If I'm doing that in the Lord's Supper, then that's going to affect my life. In fact, that's going to impact the way in which I participate in the Lord's Supper. That's going to impact the way in which I prepare for the Lord's Supper. We find in 1 Corinthians 11 that the Corinthians were not taking those things seriously. They were taking God's covenant upon their lips and throwing His law behind their backs. They were getting drunk on the communion wine. They were disregarding one another and disregarding Christian unity and Christian fellowship. They were treating it as a common meal. They were filled with strife and divisions. They were living in unrepentant sin and disunity as the body of Christ. And God says that if they had judged themselves, they would not be judged, but because they didn't take these things seriously, because they didn't come to this covenant renewal of the new covenant people of God with a mind to confess those sins and receive forgiveness, with a mind to have those laws written upon their heart, and to take God and His covenant seriously, because they disregarded that and wouldn't examine themselves and judge themselves, because of that they were judged. They were judged. Some of them were sick. Some of them died. God took it seriously when they did not take it seriously. So my friends, as much as we desire to come to the Lord's table, we need to come with a reverent and God-fearing mentality. We need to come taking the promise of forgiveness seriously. Because if we 
believe that God has forgiven our sin because of Jesus' death on the cross, then we're going to hate the sins that nailed Him to the cross. If we truly believe that God has promised to write His law on our hearts, then we're going to want to study that law and meditate on it day and night to know it, to cling to it, to hide it in our hearts that we might not sin against Him. We're going to want to come to the table unburdened and unfettered by the guilt and power of sin. And my friends, as we prepare our hearts, I want us this morning to be thinking about a particular sin. Now, there are many sins that plague Christians as they're preparing for the Lord's Supper. Many things that God may bring to your attention. This is just one of them. But I think it's a very common one. Sinful anger. Now, as I mentioned, God brings these things to our minds in a variety of ways. In His providence, through His Word, through His ordinances. I can recall several years ago, we were having family worship. We were about to have family worship. And I noticed an issue in, in the family that I felt need to be addressed. And I began to address it. Um, but in many ways, I went too far and got angry about the situation and just exaggerated it. And at that point, tried to make a transition to family worship, which is a difficult thing to do in that type of scenario. And it just so happened in God's providence that as we were singing through the psalm book that we came to Psalm 4. That was the psalm that we were scheduled to sing at that particular family worship. And as we were singing it, I was just overwhelmed with the Lord confronting me, be angry and do not sin. So it's legitimate to address issues, but when you take it too far, uh, that's a problem. That's sinful. And I just, the, the Lord used that to speak into my life about that sin. And, and then, of course, I confessed that to the family. I can't remember if it was mid-psalm. It may have been. I may have just stopped and confessed it. But either way, but the point is, God speaks to us. And perhaps this sermon will be a means by which God speaks to you. Perhaps some of the psalms or readings in this service. But as you're preparing for the Lord's Supper, make use of His ordinances. Make use of your daily devotions. Make use of Christian fellowship and conversation because God uses these things to confront us, to unveil and discover sins that need to be repented of. And so Paul confronts the Ephesians be angry and do not sin. It's important to recognize that he's, as he's quoting Psalm 4 here, that anger itself is not inherently sinful. We saw that in Psalm 119, selection G, that there the godly psalmist is filled with righteous anger. We see Jesus filled with righteous anger when he cleansed the temple in John's Gospel. We should be very careful to recognize that anger is a gift from God. Anger has been given to us by God. It's a good thing. In fact, most of the references to anger and wrath in the Scriptures are positive references to the wrath and anger of the God in whose image you and I have been created. And as believers, uh, we've been recreated according to God in true righteousness and holiness. So anger in itself is not a problem. We're to be angry. There are situations and instances where we have a duty to be 
angry. Unfortunately, in most cases, our anger is not righteous anger, but it's important to recognize that this exists. Richard Baxter defines anger in this way. Anger is a passionate emotional response to a perceived evil that would cross us or hinder us from something good. It has been given to us by God for our good. It stirs us up to vigorous resistance against anything that opposes God's glory, our salvation, or real good, or the good of our neighbors. Anger is therefore good when it is used to its appointed end in the right manner and measure, but anger may be sinful, end quote. So as I said, most references to anger in the Bible are to righteous anger, in particular God's righteous anger, Christ's righteous anger, the righteous anger of the psalmist. So anger is a gift from God. It's for our good. It's a, it's a passionate emotional response to a perceived evil. We identify something that is contrary to the character of God, contrary to the law of God, something that hinders us or our neighbor from that which is good. Something that opposes God's glory, that opposes our salvation. As I said, that opposes the good of ourselves or our neighbors. So there are situations in which we need to be angry. Moses, when he found Israel worshiping the golden calf, Exodus 32, 19, he was angry and rightly so. I mean, how could you possibly be indifferent when God's glory is being trampled in the dust? Even King Saul who was, was ungodly but had some common operations of the Spirit to help him lead the nation, King Saul in 1 Samuel 11 verse 6 heard of the cruel threat of invasion by the Ammonites and he was stirred up to anger and the, the Spirit, again in, in a non-saving way, equipped him to, to deliver the people and defend the nation. When innocent people are in jeopardy, God has designed us to be angry, to have a passionate response to that. And in some sense, if we're not able to respond with that type of passion and aggression, we're probably not going to have a lot of success defending innocent lives when those situations arise. God has given us anger. King Saul, in that case, engaged in appropriate anger. King David, 2 Samuel 13, verse 21. King David heard that his son Amnon had violated his half-sister Tamar, Amnon's half-sister Tamar. And so he hears of this rape and he is angry. David is angry. How could you not be angry? You know, there are certain things in this world that if you hear about them and you're flippant and you're not angered by them, that reflects poorly upon your moral character. God is angry. King David is angry. Moses is angry. We're told Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 6, that Nehemiah heard that the rich were enslaving their poor brethren and taking advantage of them and, and using debt to control them. And he was angry. This is righteous anger. This is godly anger. And we need to be angry. But the, the problem is that oftentimes when we're angry, we fall into sinful anger. We're commanded to be angry but we're commanded to be angry and not to sin. And that is the pitfall that we're addressing this morning. This morning we're seeking to understand sinful anger. God willing, this evening we will seek to defeat sinful anger and look at some of the ways that we can overcome it. 
But let's seek to understand it. What are some varieties of sinful anger as the Bible brings these things out? What are some of these ways that we sin in our anger and that we need to repent of and seek forgiveness and seek the law of God to be written on our hearts so that we can come to the Lord's table with a clear conscience ready to receive blessing? Well, one variety of sinful anger is anger without just cause. Anger without a cause. Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verse 22. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, You fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. But notice there, Jesus refers to being angry with our brother without a cause. That means that there's no real evil in view. We said that righteous anger is responding to something that's evil, something that's opposing God's glory, something that's sinful, something that's hindering that which is good. Those things give us cause to be angry. But in this case, Jesus says we're angry with our brother without a cause in a situation where there is no sinful provocation taking place. And so oftentimes, what happens is that we think we're justified in our anger. We think something evil has happened, but we're redefining evil instead of understanding it as that which violates God's law, that which opposes God's glory, and and so on and so forth. We begin to redefine evil as personal inconvenience or displeasure. Whether we do that explicitly or implicitly, subconsciously, we begin to equate personal inconvenience or personal displeasure with sinful injustice. And when we do that, and we think we're justified, Jesus says we're not. There's no just cause. What took place was not sinful. Somebody in the family did something. Maybe maybe they knocked over and spilled some milk. They didn't try it. It wasn't anything sinful. It wasn't that they were being reckless. They just made a mistake and it's personally inconvenient for you to clean it up and so you're angry. There there was no sin. There was no infraction. There's nothing there that violates the law of God or opposes the glory of God. It's just your child being a child and making a mistake. Somebody makes a harmless mistake Maybe it's not your child, maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's who knows. But you are angry even though nobody has sinned. You're just inconvenienced and displeased by something. And Jesus says you're angry without a just cause. Uh, There are many examples of this in the Scriptures. You, You think of Cain. He's angry with the Lord, angry with his brother Abel. Why? Because... Cain's offering was not accepted by God, and Abel's was. Abel came in faith. Abel brought a blood sacrifice, which met the divine requirement as set forth in uh, Genesis 3, the example of God sacrificing an animal and clothing Adam and Eve in the skins of it. Uh, Abel follows that divine example. Abel comes in faith in the promised salvation to come. Abel does it God's way, 
in faith, and God accepts his offering. Cain does it his own way. He doesn't come in faith. He doesn't bring the offering prescribed by God. And God does not accept Cain's sacrifice. And Cain is angry. He's angry with Abel, angry with God. And yet, uh, why is he angry? Is it right for him to be angry? God comes to him, why are you angry? Don't you know that if you followed the protocol, you would be accepted as well? But, but he's angry without any just cause. Nobody's sinned against him. Nothing unjust has been done toward him. He's just angry because it's inconvenient and displeasing for him. Uh, we see it with King Asa. Uh, otherwise a godly king, but he's confronted by Hanani the prophet for his sin in Second Chronicles 16 verse 10. And this godly king Asa becomes angry. He's angry that Hanani is confronting him for his sin. Hanani hasn't done anything rude or obnoxious or sinful. He's just bringing the message, speaking the truth in love. Asa is angry without a cause. We see it as well with King Ahasuerus. When, uh, as king of the Persian Empire in the book of Esther, and his wife, Queen Vashti, is commanded by him to put herself on display before all of the royal guests. And she refuses to be made a spectacle, which is a good thing, right? That She says, no, I'm not going to be put on display like that. She refuses, and we're told, Esther 1 verse 12, the king Ahasuerus was angry that she would not obey that sinful command that he gave to her. Uh, we're told also in the book of Esther that Haman was angered when Mordecai the Jew refused to pay him homage. And, and I think the text seems to suggest that th- this sort of bowing down, prostrate before Haman was far beyond the civil respect that we owe to, to people in authority. This was going overboard. Haman wanted essentially to be worshipped, and Mordecai the Jew refused to pay that homage. Haman was livid. He was angry. But in none of these instances is there any just cause. Nobody in any of these instances I gave uh, was sinned against. They're just personally displeased and experiencing personal inconvenience. So we need to be aware of this. Anger without a cause. Secondly, selfish motivation. Anger that is grounded in a selfish motive. Angered by a sinful action on the surface, you might say. Maybe somebody sins against you. Maybe somebody does something against you. Uh, Let's say they interrupt you. They interrupt you. Okay, somebody interrupts you. That's, that's rude. That's sinful. You're in an argument. I know sometimes you know, we, we, we may accidentally interrupt people, but, but if, if you, somebody interrupts you in a rude and, and argumentative kind of way, that's a sin, and you're angered by that. You're angered by that. But you're not angered when you're interrupting them, right? You're in an argument and you're interrupting them almost as often as they're interrupting you. And you keep getting angry that, that they're interrupting you, but you don't seem to be upset when you're doing the same thing. Uh, or if you're driving on the road and somebody cuts you off in a sinful and reckless way, and you're angry at that. But, but then you think it's totally fine when you, you know, the next day you cut somebody else off in exactly the same way. You see, uh, we can be triggered in anger by sinful things, but the question is, 
if we're selectively angry about those injustices, those sins, if we only are angry at sins that personally inconvenience us, and we don't seem to be concerned about sins that don't personally inconvenience us, this is a double standard. This means that it's not actually the sinfulness of that sin that is angering us. It's the fact that that sin is inconveniencing us. And so while there may be injustice involved, it's not the injustice that's making us angry, it's the fact that we're personally inconvenienced. And so it's grounded in a selfish motive that is illustrated by way of the double standard. Uh, Again, let's use the spilled milk as an illustration. Let's say your child is being reckless and disobedient and uh, knocks over the milk and you get angry. That would be legitimate. Now, again, we'll talk about some different ways in which you have to keep that in check. But, but it is appropriate if, if your child disobeys to then show displeasure toward your child and discipline them because they were disobeying you and they knocked over the milk. But you see, if it's the case and, and if your children begin to perceive over time that they can be just as disobedient and reckless, but if the milk doesn't fall off the edge of the table, you don't stop to do anything about it. You only get angry when the milk is spilled. You only get angry when the personal inconvenience comes into play. You see, it becomes clear that you're not actually angry or displeased primarily at the sinful action that's taking place. You're just upset about personal inconvenience. That is selfishly motivated anger, and that's sinful anger. Uh, if, if your anger depends on whether the milk spills or whether it doesn't, that's a problem. And uh, again, children can pick up on this very quickly. Uh, another variety of sinful anger is when anger is displayed in an inappropriate manner or to an inappropriate degree in an inappropriate manner or degree. In other words, rash or indiscreet anger. And that can come in a number of different forms. It can, it can be the case that your anger is just you have too much anger. There's just too much of it. Maybe some injustice has taken place and it warrants some displeasure, some anger, some passionate opposition But you go overboard like Simeon and Levi. When their sister Dinah was raped, they were rightly angry. And when their father Jacob didn't really handle the situation very well, they were rightly angered by that. But they went overboard in their wrath, in their anger. They took advantage of the the covenant of circumcision. You may recall the story in the book of Genesis. I won't recount the whole thing, but... But essentially, they abused the, the covenant of circumcision such that all the men in the town of Shechem, not just the man who raped their sister, but all the men in Shechem received circumcision and then they went in and slaughtered them during the time in which they would have been weak and recovering from the circumcision. They slaughtered an entire city of people because of one person who committed a crime. And they're condemned for that. In fact, Jacob essentially disinherits them in Genesis 49 of certain aspects of their uh, family blessing. So 
our anger can go overboard. That's, I think, the situation I was describing in family worship for myself, and perhaps you've experienced that, where there's something, where there's a legitimate cause or warrant for anger, but it just goes overboard. There's too much. Uh, You're making a mountain out of a molehill, as they say. So we need to be aware of that. Uh, How much anger is necessary to make the point and, 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 and oppose the evil versus how much is just flowing out of a heart of bitterness. Another instance of uh, anger displayed in an inappropriate manner or degree is when anger is hasty. It comes too soon. We're all familiar with God's attribute of long-suffering. God is patient. The Scriptures say He's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. God's anger is not hasty anger, thoughtless anger, knee-jerk reactionary anger, but oftentimes our anger is. And so there may be an offense, there may be an evil that takes place that provokes us, but uh, are, are we easily provoked? Are we hastily provoked to anger? Do we speak and react and respond before we've had time to consider? Proverbs 19 verse 11 The discretion of a man makes him slow to anger, and his glory is to overlook a transgression. So there are many instances where something takes place, and it's it's sinful, it's unjust, whether it's your children, whether it's a brother or sister in the body of Christ, whether it's somebody in the workplace. And once you stop to think about what has taken place, you realize it's probably not the wisest thing to respond right now. And you begin to strategize and exercise Christian wisdom and prudence. And you think about how you can respond. In some cases, you cover it in love. In other cases, you, you, you say to yourself, well, I'm going to deal with this you know, later on. Maybe there's an issue with your spouse. And you say, well, if I address this right now, it's going to cause, it's just going to blow up. So I'm going to you know, be prudent and strategic. So take time to think. Take time to exercise discretion. Be slow to anger. Don't be quick to the trigger. Don't be easily provoked, hastily provoked. And and in many cases, it's our glory to overlook a transgression. In some cases, the best thing is just to to pray about it for that person, to, to pray that God would work in their life. It's not always the case that we need to immediately express our displeasure about things. In fact, in Titus chapter 1, we're told that one of the qualifications for the ordained office of elder is that a person is not hastily angered, that they're, that they're self-controlled. Titus 1 verse 7, not self-willed, not quick-tempered. So someone who has control of themselves in a situation and is able to think through things before they speak. Uh, James chapter 1, verse 19 also addresses this, a fairly familiar passage for many of us. James 1, verse 19, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear. And in this context, I mean, we should be good listeners, but in this context, it's actually talking about the Word of God. Swift to listen to the teaching, perhaps even a, a word of rebuke from the Scriptures that same word by which we've been brought forth 
as the first fruit of His creatures. Verse 18, that same word, we need to be swift to hear it, even when it cuts across and convicts us of sin. Swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, it doesn't say you can't have any wrath, but it says slow to wrath. Carefully, wisely thinking through how you're going to respond, not just in a hasty way. Uh, Anger, thirdly, can also be displayed for too long of a period of time. Anger in an inappropriate manner or to an inappropriate degree can involve how long you're angry, the period of time in which you're angry. We saw that in Ephesians chapter 4, where it says, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. What is that telling us? Is that saying that in your marriage, you should not let the sun go down on your disagreement? In other words, if you don't come to an agreement by 9.30, 10 o'clock p.m., you need to keep arguing and keep debating and discussing till 5 a.m. and then you call in sick for work, okay? That is not what that is saying. It doesn't say don't let the sun go down on your disagreement. These things may not be fully resolved, but don't let the sun go down on your anger, your wrath, your bitterness. Come to terms, find an ability to agree to disagree, and set a time to continue that dialogue uh, when it's the appropriate time. But the point here is, that, that fiery, fierce conflict and, and displeasure. Find a way to, to deal with that before the sun goes down. Don't allow it to linger. Don't allow resentment to fester in your heart toward that person with whom you have that disagreement. Deal with it as quickly as possible, uh, lest it continue on and on and on and, and defile you and defile that person and your relationship with them and and plant a root of bitterness that defiles many as well. So these are some varieties of sinful anger and there are various expressions of sinful anger. The Bible tells us that it's out of the heart that the mouth speaks. The heart is the wellspring of life and when we say something with our lips, it's because it's come out of our hearts. We need to be careful. Sometimes we say, well, I'm sorry for saying that. I didn't really mean that. But in, in some cases, we did mean it. In most cases, if we said it, at least at the time, we meant it. Now, if we said something that was misunderstood, that, that's okay. Hey, I didn't mean to say it that way or whatever. But in many cases, uh, we shouldn't be apologizing by saying, I didn't mean that. We should be saying, yes, I did mean that. And that's sinful and hateful. And I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I repent. Uh, But these things come out of our hearts, these expressions of sinful anger. Jesus says that it begins with anger in the heart, and then we begin to express that with our lips. He says when we say something like raka, which means empty head, so it's not the worst thing you could say, but it's something demeaning, something, uh, an expression of sinful anger and bitterness, name-calling, we say raka, and there's a certain measure of judgment. And then he says, if you, if you go over and above that, you, you might say something even worse, you fool. Now, scripturally, a fool is not just an empty head, otherwise the progression there wouldn't make any sense. A fool is someone who says in their heart there is no God. 
A fool is someone who is inherently unethical and wicked. And so when Jesus condemns a person who calls someone a fool and says you're worthy of hellfire, he's saying if you demonize somebody, if you just pollute the well, you demonize them, you disregard them, you you say something that just completely uh, uh, attacks their credibility in every sense. You fool. It's one of the worst things that you can say, you know, in carrying all of that. Now, of course, sometimes the Bible uses that word in a different way. But, but that's what Jesus is getting at. Different degrees of verbal, uh, verbal anger. Uh, and, and that's getting to the point here that we express our sinful anger through communication. Uh, not just our words, but often other ways. They say 90% of our communication is nonverbal. There are nonverbal ways in which we communicate our anger. Things that wouldn't be picked up by the courtroom reporter who's typing away the, the exact words that you're speaking, but things that are communicated through your tone of voice, through your facial expressions, through the, the words that you're inflecting, the way in which you're saying it, through... Um, uh, things that you might be saying that, that are drawing attention to certain things. You know, we speak of inside jokes. I'm not sure the, the best way to put this, but you can push somebody's buttons in a way that the average person might not recognize at first glance, but, but you know how to push their buttons. And there are ways in which we uh, express sinful anger through our communication that go beyond words. Uh, but sometimes our words can be the weapon by which we directly assault people by venting, by attacking, sometimes indirectly through gossip and slander. Uh, you see examples of this in the Scriptures. King Saul uh, is angry with his son Jonathan because he's loyal to David. And Saul, because Jonathan is loyal to David, calls him the son of an unclean woman. 1 Samuel 20, verse 30. In other words, he just curses him out. Do you curse people out? Do you, when you get angry, I'm not saying every day, but do you express your rage and your anger with these verbal arrows or swords, piercing people, attacking people, name-calling, things like this? This is a way that we express sinful anger. Eliab, David's older brother, when David comes down to fight Goliath, Eliab sees him coming to the battle and immediately begins to bring uncharitable accusations against him. I know your intentions here, David. I know your motivation. I know that you're just here to check out the battle. You have these frivolous and selfish motives. We can express our sinful anger by attacking people with false accusations, by misconstruing their intentions. And... Uh, trying to make them look bad. That's what Eliab does to David. Sinful communication. We can also sin uh, by way of angry actions. So it's not just words, but violent abuse of people and property. We can slam the door. We can punch a wall. We can slash somebody's tires. There's a lot of things we could do. Um, there, There are things that we could do in terms of if you're playing sports and you're angry that you struck out and you throw your baseball bat or your helmet or you, you know, football player turns over the, the table that has the, the water cups on it or something like that, um, we need to be aware of this. 
Cain was angry with Abel and murdered him. Moses was angry with the people and he not only spoke angry words and said, you rebels, and and expressed his verbal anger, but he struck the rock with the rod of God. Angry, violent actions. And the the world doesn't really know what to make of this. You hear the psychologists and uh, the, the recommendations that they make, it, it's almost laughable. Uh, there's a cartoon called Daniel Tiger, which is actually, I think, based on something from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood back in the day. But uh, Daniel Tiger, uh, the main character in this cartoon series, uh, sang a song that says, Stomp three times whenever you're angry. It's kind of a catchy tune. Stomp three times whenever you're angry. It kept saying this to try to teach children. When you're angry, you, you should manifest that anger with physical action. Stomp three times, but then you get it out of your system. You see, biblically, that's not the case. Uh, if you begin to manifest your anger, who's to say you're going to stop after the third time? You've actually gained momentum. And so, you know, just slamming something down or, or, or shutting a door in a loud and violent way or whatever it is, my friends, that actually builds momentum in the, in the expression of your sinful anger. Uh, d- don't think that you can just get it out of your system because very quickly your sinful flesh will begin to push it further and further and further. And what began with stomping three times could end up with physical assault of somebody or punching a hole through the wall or something along those lines. So we express our sinful anger through communication and through actions. And uh, I want to conclude this morning by noting the seriousness of sinful anger. We can be desensitized to sinful anger primarily because it happens so often. And uh, one study suggested that the average person in our country is angry 10 to 14 times per day. And because of that, and most of those cases I would assume are sinful anger, because of that, let's be honest, we don't take this sin as seriously as we ought. I mean, when, when you look at Moses being prevented from entering the promised land because he spoke and acted in anger, we need to take this seriously. God takes it seriously. Whether it happens 10 to 14 times a day is irrelevant. If it's happening, it's serious. God takes it seriously. This is a damnable sin. Now, every sin deserves eternal death. But when we speak of damnable sins, we're saying if this sin characterizes your lifestyle, it is a mark of someone who is on their way to eternal destruction. That's, that's what a damnable sin is. Uh, it's one thing to fall into sin, to repent, but if this characterizes your life, and, you, and even when you hear this message, you're not convicted, you don't make any changes, you don't repent, you don't deal with it, that is a sign that you do not have a credible profession of faith in Christ and that you're headed for hell. So this is very serious. It's a damnable sin. Matthew chapter 5, verse 22, But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. He goes on, whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Later in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus puts it this way. 
Matthew 24, verse 48. He says in, in a parable, But if that evil servant says in his heart, My master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day he is not looking for him and at an hour that he is not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In other words, if you live your life in unrepentant anger, verbally or even physically assaulting other people, as it says, beating his fellow servants, eating and drinking with the drunkards, and and living this ungodly, abusive lifestyle, then there's coming a day when you will be judged as a hypocrite, whatever you profess about Jesus Christ, and you will be cast into a place where there is eternal gnashing of teeth. Your anger in this life is foreshadowing your eternal destruction. You will be consumed in the self-destructive anger against God and man, gnashing your teeth for all eternity in the miseries of hell. This is a damnable sin. It's a sin that anticipates eternal destruction. Uh, You can see in Galatians chapter 5 when Paul lists the marks of the flesh, the works of the flesh. Galatians 5.19, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery. We're feeling pretty good, many of us, at this point, right? Oh, I'm not an adulterer. Uh, I'm not a sorcerer. But notice then, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath. Well, I'm, I'm not really an angry person. It's just every once in a while. Yeah, but that's what he's saying. If you're not taking steps to deal with those occasional outbursts of wrath, if you're not repenting, if you're living in that and defending that, that's just my personality, that's just who I am. Well, if that's who you are, you're headed for hell. I hope that's not who you are. I hope your response is, boy, I really veered off the straight and narrow. I disobeyed the Lord. That's not who I am in Christ. I repent, Lord Jesus, help me. But if that's who you are, you're headed for hell. He goes on and and mentions a number of other aspects. But anger, wrath is on the list. Ephesians 4, it's not only uh, for those who are headed for hell, it's also a struggle for believers, which is why he tells believers, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, verse 30, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you. So those of you who are born again by the Spirit, those of you who are sealed for redemption, you are headed for heaven. He says, you are going to struggle with this temptation. You are going to have outbursts of wrath. And you need to respond in the grace of God by repudiating, hating, confessing, opposing, putting away that bitterness, that wrath, and that anger. My friends, this is a destructive sin. It will destroy your relationships. It will destroy your witness. It will do wreak havoc in your relationship with God, grieving the Spirit, driving away His felt presence from you. Anger is damnable. Anger, even for the believer, is destructive 
in many ways. The Bible says not only don't be an angry person, don't even make friends with an angry person. It's just going to make your life miserable by extension. Anger is so destructive and it's so intimidating. It's so domineering. When we come to grips with it and recognize how easily we fall into it time and time again, my friends, we, that's, that's where we need to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Proverbs 16, verse 32 tells us that overcoming anger and exercising self-control is something that we in ourselves simply cannot do. Uh, and I'm wrapping up here. So Proverbs 16:32. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. That's saying that to be slow to anger, to be patient, to put off this bitterness and overcome and, and put away those outbursts of wrath, in order to do that, it, it would be the equivalent of you entering hand-to-hand combat with a Navy SEAL, okay? As they say, uh, good luck with that, okay? You, you have no chance. You have no chance facing a mighty man. Uh, he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty man. Well, in ourselves, we're going to get beat up every single time. He who rules his spirit is better than he who takes a city. Imagine trying to conquer a city single-handedly. It's not going to happen. Anger is powerful. It's domineering. It's enslaving. Only the Son of God can set you free. Only the Spirit of God can enable you to do all things through Christ who gives you the strength. The sin of anger ought to bring us all to our knees. It ought to cause us to recognize our helplessness, our hopelessness, apart from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You shall know the truth. The truth will set you free. And if the Son of God sets you free, you shall be free indeed. So before we come back tonight to consider... Uh, how we can overcome this sin, I would simply urge all of us to identify and confess this sin. Bring it before the Lord. Cry out to the Lord for help, for grace. Say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I don't just believe in the forgiveness of this sin through Christ's death, but I believe in the defeat of this sin through the powerful resurrection of Jesus Christ. I believe that I can be a patient person. I believe that I can be a sweet and gracious person. I believe that I can deal with adversity by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. I can deal with it. I can count it all joy. I can stop bursting forth with anger and bitterness and malice. I have the power of Christ. And cry out and ask Him. Uh, Because if you ask your Heavenly Father for bread, He's not going to give you a stone. If you ask Him for an egg, He's not going to give you a scorpion. If you ask for the Holy Spirit, He will give abundantly. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank and praise You for Your precious promises, all of which are yea and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that You would enable us to put our trust in the strength and power of Jesus who has saved us from our sins. We pray that you would clothe us in the whole armor of God, especially that 
we through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving uh, would be equipped with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That you would enable us to cling to your promises, to your commandments, to your warnings and threatenings, to the love and mercy that you have promised us in Jesus Christ, that we might know, that we might know that we are your children and that we might know the plans that you have for us to sanctify us, to conform us to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.